All right. Some, for some reason, last week, I had four slides that I had prepared that didn't show up on the, <laughs> on the presentation. Still don't know why that was. But uh, anyway, I think we're all set to go here today. Uh, we're going back now uh, to the fact that there is currently a problem that has taken place here. The, the priests have, have uh, been all carefully instructed. They've been completely uh, inaugurated into their offices. The appropriate sacrifices have been made. Everything is all set to go. <clears throat> and then the first thing we, we learn is that Nadab and Abihu uh, offered what we saw was foreign fire. And we had an idea what foreign fire was. The view I prefer there is that uh, it was foreign. What they did was foreign to the relationship they had with the Lord, and they tried to go into the Holy of Holies. We saw that in Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And so now here they are, they're dead, and we are going to learn from the laws of cleanness and uncleanness that anything that dies in the tabernacle defiles the whole tabernacle. And so we must get rid of these uh, dead bodies. And uh, Eleazar and Ithamar couldn't touch the, their dead brothers, and so their cousins took them outside the camp. A tragic event, one that no doubt left an indelible press, uh, impression on all the priests from this point on in Israel. The Lord next instructed the remaining priests concerning the danger of wine. All right, so in chapter uh, 10, Leviticus 10, verse 8, or verse 9, Aaron says, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. Now, because this is in such close proximity uh, to the event of Nadab and Abihu's death, and it just kind of, Moses inserts it there, it's a very strong implication that, in fact, they were under the influence of wine when they, did, when they offered what they did. Uh, of course, in the ancient world, wine was diluted with water before drinking it, but it still had an alcohol content of, say, 2 to 3 percent. And if you drank enough of it, uh, you could get inebriated. Uh, showed a, a horrendous disrespect for the Lord, and uh, it, it was something, I guess, that suspended their normal uh, reason, and they, they just did an outrageous thing by trying to go into the Holy of Holies. Uh, so, no more drinking. And I closed last time by suggesting that that's a terrific stance for us to take as modern believers as well. There is no good thing that comes from drinking alcohol. Absolutely nothing. And people who do it take a chance. No one ever starts out to be a drunk, but there are plenty of 
alcohol abusers in, in the world, especially in our country. A tr very tragic event took place down on the coast oh, a week or so ago. A married couple just finished their marriage. They got a ride in a golf cart uh, to wherever it was they were going. And they, before they could get there, a drunk person hit them from behind, uh, severely injured the groom, and killed the bride. Can you, that's just gut-wrenching. So we have this problem in our country of drunk drivers. Why? Because modern living is extremely complicated. And we can't be really allowing any impairment in our lives at all. And the, there's, you know, unlike ancient Israel, where there wasn't much drink, uh, oftentimes you didn't even have very good water sources, and so uh, wine was something you could safely drink, diluted, but even then, uh, you had to be very careful you didn't consume too much. All right, so as a result of this, the Lord instructed the remaining priests that basically the danger of drinking wine, failing to distinguish between the holy and the common and the clean and the unclean, was going to be a continuing problem on into the future. And so here is this very important concept. Verses 10 through 11 is crucial for understanding chapters 11 through 15, the laws of cleanness and uncleanness. Now, for a lot of people, uh, when you're in your uh, daily uh, Bible reading, you're reading through Leviticus, you come to these chapters, and I don't know about you, but probably a lot of you have had the same, the same uh, idea that I always had when I got there in my Bible reading. It would be something like, how should we understand all these all these laws of cleanness, what you can and can't eat, what you can and can't wear, and all kinds of things that just seem uh, really strange to us in our modern era. And so what are they all intended to teach? Well, we're going to find out here. Here's the principle behind what we're about to study in uh, chapters 11 through 15. And that is, it's the priest's duty to distinguish. Now, the verb distinguish here comes from a verb that means to separate one thing from another. Uh, and it's in a, in a verb theme in, in Hebrew that means to cause there to be a, a division. Or uh, another possibility is it means that the, the priest declared a division between one thing and another. Some were clean, some were unclean. And in order to be someone who had the privilege of worshiping God at the tabernacle, you had to be clean. As a matter of fact, in your daily life, whether you went to the tabernacle or not, you had to avoid 
anything that would make you unclean. So, you are to cause a separation or declare the separation between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. All right, so the priests had not just simply a role in manipulating the sacrifices that Israelites brought, but as well they had a teaching function. And uh, so this is a very high and lofty uh, position for the, for the uh, priests. And this, this was something that they must not take lightly. They needed all their intellectual resources devoted to this. They had to do a good job of keeping everything in mind, all these laws that they're about to declare and and teach to every single Israelite. How they did this, how did they have this teaching ministry? My guess is they would go throughout the camp of Israel and they would start maybe with one tribe and and, uh, teach that tribe and then maybe move on. Uh, We're not exactly sure how they did it, but they were commanded to do it. Now, what we're saying here is that these laws of cleanness and uncleanness in chapters 11 through 15 had the purpose of making Israelites discerning. They had to apply discernment to see if something they were about to do would defile them or not. Okay, so when we get to chapter 16 of Leviticus, when we see the uh, activity on the Day of Atonement, we understand that that was a day of where, where people could rejoice. Yes, my sin is covered by the blood of the sacrifice. But day by day, they also had to be committed to being careful that they didn't do anything that made them unfit to worship God. Now, can anybody think about any kind of corresponding thing in the Christian life that's like that? Is it enough just simply to rejoice that you know the Lord as your Savior and that he has applied the blood of Christ to you, that your sins are forgiven through Christ. Does that then absolve you from being discerning in the multitude of decisions that we all make every day? How will we spend our time? How will we spend our money? What will we think about? That's our biggest battle right there. What will we think about? Because our mental processes, that's where really the battle is fought in the Christian life. We have to think correctly. We have to think biblically when we make our decisions about what we'll do and what we won't do. And so what's one of the reasons why we come to church? Well, so we can hear our pastor declare to us Okay, 
here's what's clean and here's what's unclean. Here's the importance of walking in such a way <clears throat> that we, we, we have biblical discernment. This is the kind of thing that you hear very little about uh, as you listen to maybe somebody who's a, a radio preacher or you read literature. Uh, as a matter of fact, this need for discernment even shows up in commentaries. Uh, for instance, uh, the, the book of, Levit, of Ecclesiastes has a verse that says, uh, to, uh, it, it's, a, it's an imperative, drink your wine, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I was reading a commentator, and he was saying, you know, what really amazes me is you've got these people, and they hold to the, book, to the concept of inerrancy of the scripture, and yet they're teetotalers. They won't drink wine. Uh, that's, that's an odd thing. If, if they were going to be believing in the inerrancy of Scripture, and we have an imperative to drink wine, then you should do it. And so they, uh, he made fun of people who uh, don't drink alcoholic beverages. And uh, we, we have a, uh, a uh, very narrow view of life about what we can do and what we can't do, and uh, we're missing out on all the joy of what? Potentially getting drunk? That doesn't sound, you know. But anyway, he made fun of us and as, as uh, those who take this position. And I thought, oh, terrific. This is just, you know, really helping the situation in our country. Uh, we already have enough people who approve of drinking. As a matter of fact, there's a megachurch just down 385 a little bit. And you know how they attract people to come to their church? They have a wine and cheese tasting party to get people in. And so they'll, oh boy, this is my kind of church. You know, uh, I, I can have wine and cheese before the service. Or coffee, the free coffee. Or I can have the, the music I like. They've got... Uh, a service that's contemporary music, translated rock. Uh, I don't know. Have, have any of you ever visited a church like that? Well, Linda and I ended up in one uh, on vacation one time. And when the music started up, the bass and the volume of the music was overpowering. It was I suppose it would be like going to a live rock concert. And, oh, this is wonderful. This is discernment. And, uh, oh, man, we've got, we've got a bad situation uh, in Bible-believing Christianity today. And, and this is people who say they believe the Bible. And there seems to be very little discernment about how to live the Christian life. Well, God wanted his people to be discerning, and it was the priest's job to teach that. All right, so verse 10 uh, begins with uh, the construction and. So we come down here to verse 10. You don't see it show up in the ESV. But there's a Hebrew conjunction here, 
and you are to distinguish, all right, but the, the uh, verb form of to distinguish is an infinitive construct, and it's from this verb, as I say, to cause a separation from one thing between another. And so it actually ties in with verse 9. Verse 9, uh, the, co- the command to drink no wine is an imperative. Verse 10 says, and the, the basic uh, meaning of the, imper- of the infinitive construct here is to make distinguish also an imperative. And you must cause a distinction between the holy and the common the clean and the unclean. So that's, those two verses go together. This is the priest's mandate for a teaching ministry. And so, as long with not drinking wine, you are to cause a separation in people's thinking between what they can do and maintain their cleanness, their standing with the Lord so they can go and worship at the tabernacle. They can worship at home, for that matter. Uh, But unclean people, in certain instances, had to even be excluded from the camp of Israel. They couldn't even live in their house. They had to go outside the camp until they were clean. Then they could return to their homes. And so this, was, this, this concept of cleanness and uncleanness was directly tied to, are you even fit for fellowshipping with a fellow Israelite? It's imperative for God's people to learn how they must discern and separate the holy from the common, or the, as we use the English term, profane. This is what we must do as Christians as well. There's a timeless principle that uh, basically transcends the Old Covenant and the New Covenant here and joins together our duty uh, as New Covenant believers. We are still to realize there are things that are going to defile us in our normal everyday activity. And they are numerous, and they are all around us, everywhere we turn, all the way from social media to uh, the news, to print media, to friends that we talk with, maybe co-workers at work. Oh, there's an interesting, an interesting venue for... Uh, uncleanness to get into our lives. Boy, oh boy, I tell you what, the things that some people believe, it's crazy. I was just witnessing to an individual last week, and when I got to asking him, uh, you know, what his, his religious background was, he says, well, I'm a Presbyterian, but I worship, I've always worshiped on the golf course. And uh, that's, that's my place of worship. And I said, oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, how does that work? We got, we got talking. And then uh, basically he said, you know, I asked him, 
what's going to happen when you die? Do you believe that the human soul lives on past death? He says, oh yes, I believe that. I believe I'm going to come back in another interesting life. And I said, well, how do you know it's not going to, you're not going to be born some poor person living in a jungle. He says, oh no, no, I think I'm going to, going to have a more interesting life than this. I said, okay, here's what the Bible says. For it is appointed to man once to die. Die once, and then what comes next? The judgment. Okay? No room for incarnation. Oh, then he wanted to argue with me about how much he's had deja vu and that sort of thing. Uh, And I said, well, you know, we all experience deja vu. Who knows where these things come from? Maybe you read a book and you remember that book and, and there's something you, inc- you experience in life and you, and you get the eerie feeling you've already been here, already done that. And uh, it's a subconscious thing. It's a well-documented phenomenon uh, in psychology. But that doesn't mean... We lived previous lives, and we're going to live another life after we die. No, we are going to go directly from death to judgment unless, unless you've trusted Christ as your Savior. Well, at that point, he got this kind of glazed-over look on his face, and I, I thought, well, I'm going to save this again, try again later. But uh, people have got very interesting ideas about whether or not they're going to stand before God in judgment. God taught his people, Israel, how to learn this separation by giving them the laws of cleanness and uncleanness in chapters 11 through 15. They had to live ritually pure lives to live in God's presence. And they were about to go in and conquer the promised land, and they would have to do that by killing Canaanites. The Lord is going to tell them, if you let any of these Canaanites live, they're going to be thorns in your sides, and they are going to tempt you into their false worship, and it's going to be disastrous for you. So I'm going to teach you Laws of separation, which will help you remember you are to have no covenants with the Canaanites. You are not to marry off your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. You're going to be separate. (coughs) Excuse me. And so I think these, these laws of cleanness and uncleanness had a very practical aspect that that God's people were not to get too cozy with the Canaanites. They were supposed to, in fact, exterminate them. But that's a whole different subject. So, here we go. These laws of cleanness and uncleanness are no longer binding in the New Covenant, but we must still be concerned with the principles of separation that God demands of us today. Here's an example. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 
Now we're into a passage that uh, is well known. And this passage starts in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just let the enormity of that statement sink in. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Well, isn't that interesting? Paul is using the exact terminology that we have before us in the book of Leviticus. Then I will welcome you. Then you will be fit for fellowship with me. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So what was the authority of the New Testament apostles when it came time to be teaching, just like the Old Testament priests did, to be teaching principles of separation. Their authority was the Old Testament, and especially the Law of Moses, the the first five books of our Bible that we call the Pentateuch. That was their authority. That's the scripture. Well before we had the canon of the New Testament, Everything was proved from the Old Testament. That's one of the reasons it's so important for us to study the Old Testament. We have, we have diminished appreciation for New Testament commands and New Testament ordinances and, and what takes place in the New Testament if we don't know the Old Testament. That's why, for instance... Before we took communion this morning, what did Pastor Reimers preach from? Exodus. All right, so that's a, I commend that. Questions such as, who will I associate with in ministry? And is this an activity that pleases the Lord or not? These are vitally important questions for us. And as we read through all the scripture, both Old Testament and New, we understand that this concept of separation uh, extends all the way from Genesis chapter 1, when when God caused a separation between light and darkness, for instance. A separation between the sea and the dry land. All kinds of separation built into even species or whatever the meaning of the Hebrew word for kind is. The, the uh, one kind was separated from another kind. Uh, and so here we have Genesis 1 emphasizing this concept all the way through to the last chapter of Revelation when God finally separates 
all unbelievers from all believers. And then basically they will never, they will never be uh, associated with one, one another again. An eternal separation. And sadly, some people will spend their eternity in the lake of fire. These people have rejected Christ. That the most horrible thing we can even imagine. I used to work for the paper industry. And in the in paper mills, we had something called a recovery boiler. All right? So in the pulping process, take wood chips, put them in a large pressure vessel called a digester, put in sodium hydroxide, sodium sulfide, let it cook for about, oh, depending on the pressure and the temperature of the, of the cook, somewhere in the neighborhood of half an hour to 45 minutes. Then you had what you call the blow valve. Blow valve would open, and out would come uh, chips that had had the lignin that holds wood fibers together in a tree. The lignin was at least partially dissolved in solution. When you would open the blow valve, the noise was like 10 747s taking off at once because that thing was under, say, 375 to 400 pounds of pressure per square inch. And suddenly, it blows out into a receiving tank at normal atmospheric pressure. Then the chips would be washed, the lignin and the cooking chemicals would be sent to a recovery boiler. All right, so recovery boilers were 150, 200 feet tall, all lined with water pipes, and inside there was where the lignin burned off and you were able to recover uh, sodium hydroxide once again, sodium sulfide, it would go back and start the process uh, again, But when you would look through the viewing port inside the boiler where all this lignin was burning off and where you had liquid sodium metal floating in a pool, sodium is unbelievably dangerous. All right? Reacts, extremely reactive. Anything that comes in contact with it, like if you put water in there, it would just explode. So, so uh, reactive. And I used to look through that viewing port every once in a while when I had to go uh, down there to collect a sample of something for analysis. I'd look in there and I'd think, it's like I'm looking into the pit of hell. That's, that's a, a lake burning with fire. And it's got lots of sulfur in it. How would you like to be in a place like that? Forever, no chance of getting out. That is the destination, the ultimate destination of people who reject Christ. All right, so that's why I'm saying... This is vitally important. 
and it's especially important who we will associate with in ministry. All right, we, we have here a historically fundamentalist Baptist church. And there had been a lot of history in America between faith and unbelief. And it's getting more and more rare today to have people asking the question, with whom may I participate in ministry? We've got formerly fundamental churches that have answered that question the wrong way. Basically anybody. We can't be that way in our lives or corporately in our church. All right, let's go ahead and and, uh, continue. By the way, any questions or comments here? All right, seeing none, let's go ahead and get into what it is that the priests are to teach. They are to teach discernment. And now we're into chapter 11 of Leviticus. So turn there, if you would, please. Leviticus chapter 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat of these. The camel, because it chews the cud, but it does not part the hoof. It is unclean to you. The rock badger. Well, Unfortunately, we're not real sure what these Hebrew terms mean exactly for all these animals. How many of you have ever seen a rock badger? How about a regular badger? (coughs) Uh, I used to live in Wisconsin. On Wisconsin. What was their mascot? The badger. Never seen one in the, in the woods or anywhere, but anyway, we, we're not really sure what that critter is, by the way. Anyway, it, it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof. And the hare, because it chews the cud, but does not part the hoof, it is unclean to you. Now, we do know what a pig is. And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed, but does not chew the cud, it is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh. You shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. All right, so it's a description of all the animals you can and can't eat and how to discern between what is clean and what isn't clean. Then we have animals that uh, swim in the water. All right, so let's take a look at, at these. Look. We're getting probably ahead of ourselves here in the slides. God intended to show the Israelites through the law of purity, laws of purity and impurity. That's another way to think of cleanness and uncleanness is purity and impurity. 
are the necessity of a close personal examination of every detail in life. What kind of animals are we to eat? Or maybe you're a vegetarian and uh, you don't eat animals to start with. Well, then you don't have to worry about this huh, if you're an Israelite. If all you're eating is, is fruits and vegetables, you didn't need to worry. Uh, and so everything related to the start of life and to the end of life and everything in between could make people impure. All right? So, for instance, things associated with the beginning of life. Uh, after a woman gave birth to her child, she was unclean for a certain period of time. Why is that? Anything wrong with giving birth? I hope not. But the Lord wanted to impress on our minds everything in life has the potential of making us unclean, and so all things associated with procreation could make a person unclean. Anything associated with death, the beginning of life, the end of life, and the implication is here, and everything between the beginning of life and the end of life could make you unclean. So that means everything we do, everything we eat, everything we wear, every place we go, every thought we think, it all has the potential for causing impurity. And that's what God wanted us to understand, and that is a timeless principle. So we have pure and impure animals, fish and birds. And so distinguish, uh, we need to distinguish what we're going to eat. So, sustaining life demands food. You may be even sitting here thinking, I hope that the roast in my crock pot turns out well today. I can hardly wait. And you're not thinking a thing about what I'm saying. You're just thinking about your pot roast. Now, if you weren't before, and you have pot roast waiting for you, now you're thinking about it, right? Uh, I mean, it just goes to show that eating is very important to our lives. Some people in our day even refer to themselves as foodies. Okay, what's a foodie? Well, somebody like, you know, we used to call them gourmets. They just spent most of their waking days either planning what they were to eat or finding some new, really neat ingredient that would make what they ate taste supreme. Uh, yeah, yeah, these are people, and they're always looking for the next culinary uh, adventure, and it's a, a very important thing to them. And in fact, eating sustains life. If you don't have any appetite, that's not a good sign. Israelites had to be careful not to eat something that made them impure. So when it came to animals, they had to realize, well, okay, does it have a cloven hoof and chew the cud, or does it not? Uh, how about a dog? Is that pure or impure? Clean or unclean? Well, it doesn't even have a hoof. <laughs> and so 
if you were tempted to eat dog, sorry, you weren't doing it as an Israelite. By the way, I understand I've never been to the Philippines, but apparently it's a real delicacy to eat dog meat. Okay? I think that's one of the questions I'm going to ask Atan when he shows up next time. I'm going to say, have you ever eaten dog? <laughs> okay. How about a horse? It's got a hoof. Is it, is it a cloven hoof? No, it's not. So it's unclean. But in France, they love horse meat. Okay, so this is, uh, this is something you have to discern. All right, well, we're out of time now. So we'll pick up here uh, next time. Our Father, we pray that you will help us to learn from these concepts in the book of Ludovicus, the importance of making proper distinctions and discernment of what would defile us and what wouldn't. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.